Hello, and welcome to the Heavenly Social, where I introduce you to our heavenly brothers and sisters, the champions in our lives who show us how to live for Jesus and protect us in our spiritual battles. As many of you know, the physical and spiritual are closely intertwined. What we do in life affects our souls, and the state of our souls affect our lives here on earth. This is why sin is, and or at least should be, taken so seriously. Spiritual battles often take the form of physical struggles, and physical victories radiate into and form a truly righteous soul. Such freedom can only lead to joy. So I ask you, do you long to live in the joy that heaven brings? Do you wish to bring the joy to others? If so, then let me introduce you to the joyful Saint Philip Neri. Intro tune. Our story begins on July 21st, 1515, when our friend for today, Philip Neri, was born to a successful noble family in Florence, Italy. Though I've read conflicting accounts as to how successful his family actually was, but I'll elaborate on that a little bit more here in a bit. Now, he was the oldest of four children. He had a younger brother, who unfortunately died early, and two younger sisters. He was afforded a comfortable childhood and was blessed with a great education. Now, from what I gather, his family wasn't especially spiritual, focusing more on business. Fortunately, his education was overseen by the Dominicans at the Monastery of San Marco. Now, this isn't to say his family didn't take the faith seriously, as it appears that they just placed a stronger emphasis on success in the world. Now, at the monastery, he found his love for God in prayer, and would make time amidst his busy life to give himself to God, a practice he continued when, after turning 18, he was sent away to work under the tutelage of his uncle Romolo at San Germano, which is now the town of Casino. This is where those conflicting accounts about his family's success and wealth come into play. I've not found a ton written about his early life, and while being born to a noble family may sound like Philip grew up with wealth, it seems that his family wasn't particularly well off. His father was a lawyer, and seemed to be involved in the politics of Florence. Part of the reason for Philip going to San Germano was that there was the hope that he would inherit his uncle's wealth. But God had other plans for him. You see, when Philip had free time, he would venture to the coast, about 30 miles away, Specifically, he went to Montagna Spaccata, where there was a chapel in a fissure that overlooked the sea. Pictures of it are beautiful, so I can see why he would make the trek out there to pray. He would also take the time to visit the Benedictine Abbey at Monte Cassino. Now, after only a few weeks, Philip knew he was being called elsewhere, that being Rome. At some point, during these times of prayer, Philip experienced a vision. We don't know the details of what he saw, but 
It had such a dramatic impact on him that he describes the event as his conversion. Judging by how radically this vision changed his life, I feel confident in saying that this was absolutely a conversion of heart. And when I say radically changed, I mean he completely renounced any pursuit of business or wealth, and then hiked to Rome to start a new life caring for the poorest of the poor. He arrived in Rome, July of 1533, when he was 18 years old. And I'd like to reiterate that he was 18 when he decided not to pursue business and to serve the despondent souls in Rome, which is pretty flippin' awesome. Now, I want to take a couple of minutes to paint the Roman scene at the time. You see, six years prior, in 1527, Rome was sacked for the upteenth time. Though this was an extraordinarily significant event, as it marked the end of the High Renaissance in Italy, it served to virtually eliminate any chance of Protestants and Catholics reunifying, and it largely took away the Pope's ability to oppose the Holy Roman Empire. In short, soldiers and mercenaries of the Holy Roman Empire mutinied when they learned they could not be paid by the Emperor. So they made their way to nearby Rome to pillage and loot anything and everything that they could. On May 6th of 1527, they attacked the fortified city. However, Rome was grossly outnumbered, defending against approximately 20,000 soldiers with only a force of about 5,000 themselves. Within the day, the defenses of Rome were overwhelmed and the city fell to the ravagers. The defenders didn't go down without a fight, though. In order to allow Pope Clement VII a chance to escape to Castel Sant'Angelo through a secret tunnel, the 189th Swiss Guard put up such a fight that this event has become known as the Last Stand of the Swiss Guard. Of the 189, 42 of them survived, having safely gotten the Pope out of the city. And there's an amazing metal song about their heroism, aptly called the Last Stand by the band Sabaton. Uh, it rocks. I highly recommend it. <laughs> now, getting back on track. Philip arrived in Rome five years after this happened in 1533, so the city wasn't exactly in good shape. To put things into perspective again, the population of Rome before the 1527 sack was about 55,000. Afterward, the population was only about 10,000 and wouldn't recover for several decades. The city was a mess, but recovering. Philip began to study theology and philosophy with the Augustinians there within the city. He lived with a fellow Florentine named Galeotto del Caccia. As rent, he tutored Galeotto's children. In the years following, Philip ministered as a layman to the impoverished in Rome. He was noted for his infectiously joyful disposition, and I can only imagine how uncommon his described joy must have been amongst these people who had suffered so much. The church was in turmoil with the Protestant Reformation. There were lingering scandals that motivated the Reformation. The crime rate was rampant throughout the city, and in general it seemed people were simply resigning to baser desires. Along with several other saints at the time, 
Philip ended up becoming known as a counter-reformer. Not in the sense that he opposed Reformation, but rather he challenged the extremism that the Protestant Reformation brought by simply living as a Catholic should. He acted with charity and love, instructing according to the tenets of the faith, and shared his joy of love for Jesus with all he met. In this way, he challenged the Protestant Reformation by pushing for a proper reform of the Catholic Church. He served the poor as a layman for many years, and around 1544, he met St. Ignatius of Loyola, eventually becoming friends with many of the Jesuits. At this time, the Jesuit order was only about four years old, so Philip witnessed the zeal for missionary work from figures such as St. Francis Xavier and St. Peter Faber. This stoked a fire within Philip to follow in the footsteps of Francis Xavier and go on mission to India as well. However, when he sought advice regarding the matter, Philip was told, Don't leave. Your Indies are here in Rome. Philip heeded that advice and would dedicate his life to the people of Rome. In 1548, Philip helped found the confraternity of the Most Holy Trinity of Pilgrims and Convalescents, which specially helped poor pilgrims, as well as those discharged from the hospital who were still sickly. Also through the confraternity, Philip would bring to Rome the growing devotion we now know as Eucharistic Adoration. Back then, they would expose the Eucharist for 40 hours due to the biblical symbolism of that number. In 1551, when he was 36 years old, Philip was ordained to the priesthood and began tending to the Roman people as such. From this work arose what he is arguably best known for, which is the Congregation of the Oratory. Now, this began in 1556, when Philip had made it a regular occurrence to host meetings in the upper chapel of the Hospital San Girolamo della Carita. I am so sorry for my pronunciation of that. These meetings consisted of prayers, hymns, sermons, and a general study of the faith as a community. The special music became known as oratorios, and were a varied concert composition about sacred history, be they biblical scenes or tellings about the lives of saints. From this oasis of spiritual formation, the participants would go out into the city and simply serve. This was a comparatively casual community of ordained who would meet and share in the joy of Jesus together. They didn't contain this joy merely to the physical oratory either. They would go on pilgrimages around the city, making a celebration of it with music and picnics. And I just love that image. It makes me smile so hard to think about the simple joy Philip and the other oratorians shared with the city of Rome through these demonstrations. It's no wonder, then, that so many became attracted to Philip's oratory. And this community grew for years, such that there became a need for larger and larger spaces. In 1575, the Church of Santa Maria in Vallicella was given to the congregation by Pope Gregory XIII. 
It was rebuilt to increase the size and to better match the needs of the congregation. Looking at pictures of it, the church is stunning, by the way. That same year, on July 15th, the Pope formally recognized the Congregation of the Oratory as a Society of Apostolic Life in a Papal Bull. The Oratory is not a religious institute or a monastery. So, for, for example, members don't take vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, or really any other vows for that matter. Rather, it's a community of priests and brothers that exercise the spirituality of everyday life. Basically, the goal is to bring Christ into the ordinary moments in our lives. There was a strong emphasis on serving the local communities, and as such, Philip made the decision not to be the superior general, opting for each individual oratory to function with autonomy. I believe the movement of the oratory caught on so well because Philip embodied the result of living for Jesus while in the world. He was joyful. Philip lived out his mission so purely that he has become known as the saint of joy. The Lord spoke to his heart all those years ago when he was studying business, and from that renunciation of worldly things, Philip was free to move the hearts of a people that had known extraordinary pain. He showed the beggars, prostitutes, and criminals that they still had dignity as people, and reflected Jesus' love for them. He continued his work, being a friend and priest to the people, up until his death on May 25th of 1595, when he was 79 years old. And when I say he worked until his death, I mean that literally. He was ill, but still spent the day that he died hearing confessions and meeting with visitors, passing away that evening. He was beatified in 1615 by Pope Paul V and canonized a saint in 1622 by Pope Gregory XV. His feast day is May 26th, and some of his saintly patronages include laughter, joy, comedians, artists, and writers, just to name a few. There are a couple legends with St. Philip Neri that I'd like to mention before wrapping up his story, though. The first is that it's said Philip could smell impurity, as though the corruption it brings to a person's soul manifested physically as a horrid stench to him. While repulsed, Philip used this gift to challenge those in this state to turn away from worldly pleasure, and all he needed to convince them was the joy in his own life. Secondly, there's the legend regarding his heart. It said that in 1544, just days before Pentecost, Philip was enthralled in prayer. While in this conversation with God, a globe of fire appeared, entered his mouth, and lodged itself in his chest. Philip threw himself on the ground from the burning pain it caused, and afterward he found a lump protruding from his chest where his heart was. It remained until his death, and after that initial burning experience, it never caused him any pain. Now, after his death, it was found that his heart had truly enlarged, and that two of his ribs had broken to accommodate it. Now, this 
has become the miracle testifying to Philip's divinely inspired love for God and his creation. There may be some skeptics when it comes to miraculous stories like these, and uh, I wouldn't blame you. In fact, regarding Philip's heart, Pope Benedict XIV decided that the enlargement was caused by an aneurysm, and was therefore not taken into consideration during his canonization process. And perhaps the stench Philip smelled was detectable by others, but maybe he recognized it as unique to areas where impure acts were practiced. Uh, why am I framing these two stories like that? Well, because I think it makes them more credible. I mean, in a sense. We, and I include myself here, often look to miracles as something completely inexplicable. Whether we expect them to be like that, or we want them to be some inexplicable work. Reasonable enough. But I don't think a miracle has to be completely inexplicable in every way, shape, or form in order to be miraculous. We live in God's creation, so I think it's reasonable to assume that he would use his creation to bring about dramatic, even if explainable, change. The miracle God works isn't always the work that we perceive. I'd say... Frankly, more often than not, the miracle is the change within a soul. And that can come from something simple, happening at just the right time. So my point here is that these stories are really cool, and it is really neat seeing how God acted in these more extraordinary ways during a saint's life. But... Don't sweat it if you've not found your heart enlarged by an aneurysm. God has his plans, and sometimes the external miracles are necessary. There are many canonized saints who do not have such stories. The simple formula, and the thing that I think we should take away from every saint's life, is to become a saint, all we have to do is love God and do what he asks. How our stories unfold after that is up to him. Now, with that, let's go on to the virtue that stood out the most to me. And this might come as a surprise, but uh, what stood out to me the most with spending time with Philip was the virtue of his purity. I know I'm really taking the brazen path with that one. But I think what makes this such a powerful virtue is that it's so multifaceted. Most often, purity is associated with chastity, keeping our minds free of lewd thoughts, guarding our eyes against risque sights, and maintaining proper conduct as befitting a proper gentleman or lady. In today's culture of flings, on-demand access to porn, and rampant sexualization of people, this facet of purity, being such a large focus, is very necessary, and worth the fight, even for that reason alone. However, purity plays a major part in so many aspects of our daily life. 
Because I would say it is a sort of gauge or a, a measure of our holiness versus sinfulness. When one thinks strictly of the term pure, what comes to mind? For me, it's an image of fresh fallen snow, perfectly white, undisturbed, and radiant in the sunlight. One might also think of a substance like a chemical, pure and has no contaminants or additives. In short, something that is pure is perfectly itself, at least as far as I understand it. For us, sin is a contaminant, a mark, a distortion of our soul. The less we sin, the purer we are, the more holy we are. Resistance to sin is how we become most perfectly ourselves, in our own individual, unique ways that God longs for us. For many years I have assumed that we, as flawed humans, will never truly achieve this perfection on earth. However, I've recently come around to a broader understanding of perfection. I would say my understanding of perfection has always involved a sort of accrual. By doing this or that, I'll gain or add something to myself and therefore become more perfect. I viewed myself as lacking in some quality. Incomplete and needing something or circumstance. And then I would suddenly become perfected. I've since come around to seeing the process not as additive, but subtractive, in a manner of speaking. God has already made us as he intended, and just as a chemical compound is made more perfect by removing impurities, so too are we made perfect by removing sin from our hearts. Just as I described earlier, by removing these little separations from God, we become what he longs for us to be. It is possible, and the saints prove this. I must admit my own shortcomings in understanding, because by resigning to the idea that perfection is impossible, I placed a limit on God's graces. To use another analogy, raw metal ore must be treated in high-temperature smelters, and just as the ore cannot heat itself without the metal worker, neither can we remove the impurities of our own souls without the Lord. I use the metalwork analogy because just as ore requires immense heat to purify the metal, the image of heat and flame is pretty apt, I think, for the sufferings we endure. Perhaps the growth we seek in ourselves isn't the acquisition of some trait, but the expulsion of those things in our hearts that keep us from being perfect. All accomplished in the fires of tribulation and struggle. Now that's metal. <laughs> One practical thing we can watch is our motivation to achieve purity, and therefore perfection. Are we motivated not for our own sakes, but for the sake of God's glory? I admit that I often fall into the trap of desiring holiness while thinking of what I can gain. I'll often motivate myself by saying, Alright, 
If I offer this up, then I'll have peace. Or if I pray this, then I'll know love. There's countless variations where I turn the benefits of holiness toward me. Now, I certainly don't want to encourage scrupulosity, as that is an enemy of hope. In the journey towards perfection, we can see there's a more perfect motivation for holiness. That's to console Jesus. Our sin drives the nails into his hands, preventing him from reaching out to us. We abandon him and cause him unimaginable suffering. The reasons we may seek holiness, whether that be personal peace or a reprieve from some sort of anguish in our life, are a beautiful gift because Jesus wants us to be free from the pains and terrors that plague us. The divine romance is made perfect when we desire to rid Jesus of his pain just the same as he wants to rid us of ours. We learned from St. Catherine of Genoa's vision of purgatory that a perfect soul does not think of oneself. When we can turn our desire for holiness away from the graces and consolations that he will give us, and instead strive for holiness to console and rid Jesus of his pain, then we'll know purity. Then we will know perfection. The world will truly become, in our eyes, decrepit, as the beauty of heaven will outshine all the vain happenings here. The lies of the devil will evaporate in the light of the divine love we have entered into, and through us, this life becomes reflected into a darkened world like a polished mirror. The purity of our lives gives Jesus a means of shining bright like the noonday sun on fresh fallen snow. That's what purity means to me, in a broader context at least. If there's one thing Philip Neary teaches us, it's that to live with a pure soul will fill us with an overflowing joy. The weight of the world holds no power, and we can experience the intention behind God's creation. How can that not be a cause for joy? To quote our friend, A joyful heart is more easily made perfect than a downcast one. Exercise pure joy like St. Philip Neri, and one day someone might just tell your story. Until next time. And outro.